At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Election 2024 feels like deja vu all over again. I can't say I'm excited for the endless debates over Biden's age or Trump's latest scandal. When it comes to politics, we're divided and stuck in our own bubbles. Today, I'm joined by two people who talk a lot about politics, and they want to help us have better conversations. Sarah Stort Holland and Beth Silvers are the hosts of the podcast Pantsuit Politics. They've been described as America's political therapists. They're here to talk about Super Tuesday and what voters are thinking. Welcome to Say More, Sarah and Beth. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about what just happened over the weekend in South Carolina. Uh, so Donald Trump trounces Nikki Haley in her home state of South Carolina. Uh, she's staying in the race, even after big donors are abandoning her. So why is Haley still running? Beth, why don't you start? I don't know her personal motivations. I only know what I can project onto her. And I have many thoughts about that. I think that she's right when she says we're down to a two-person race and you still have 40 percent of people in a state like South Carolina who are opposed to a pseudo-incumbent. And those voters deserve to have a choice going forward. Super Tuesday should be a contested race. We haven't had any debates in this cycle that involved the front runner. So how else is he to be tested if there is no other candidate in the primary? And what message are we giving to voters if it's uncontested throughout? I also think personally, he has pushed too many of her buttons. I think talking about her husband's military service with such disrespect has personally motivated her in maybe a way that nothing else could have. And I think she's decided that it is time to stop thinking about her potential future. She knows that enough people are supportive of the message that she's putting out there, that she can have a great career and life after this. But she isn't going to be beholden to that sense that in the Republican Party, if you are not part of the MAGA movement, you're not here at all. You don't have any place. So I think it's probably some combination of a care for Republican voters who don't fit into the Trump box and and personal ambition that's defined differently than maybe it's ever been for Nikki Haley before. Mm-hmm. I really struggle with so much of the media coverage around Nikki Haley's candidacy and her decision to stay in the race. And Donald Trump's um, sort of 
strategy participation. I don't even know what to call it in the primary at this point. In some ways, you'll hear people say this is not a primary. This is a coronation, which I think is accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the coverage still kind of leans to that stereotypical coverage of a primary as if the voters are speaking. I thought Axios had a great line about the South Carolina primary that was like, if if the electorate is older evangelical election denying voters, then yeah, he'll trounce. But that's not what the electorate is made up of. And I think this this sort of tension between we understand that this process has been, um, you know, strategically organized to Donald Trump's advantage, that he doesn't act like a normal candidate, that he doesn't debate, that the fundraising is deeply problematic when he's spending 50 cents of every dollar on legal fees, that, you know, that there are these very confusing primaries. You had Nevada where you had a primary and a caucus. You have Michigan that's going to have this split confusing process. The state parties are a mess. It's not a normal primary. So why would she make a normal analysis to stay in or stay out based on, you know, either delegate math or whatever the case may be. I think the best speech she's given so far is this is not normal. (laughs) This is not normal. So I think trying to see her decision to stay in or stay out through a normal primary lens is really problematic. I mean, you'd think the media would have learned, we would have learned our lesson from 2020. But I mean, do you think we're any better covering or even 2016? Do you think we're any better covering the election this time? This isn't 2016. And this isn't 2020. And that's why any lessons we learn are hard to apply because it's still changing and shifting. And I think that the idea that, oh, we just fall for him and we cover his earned media. Well, there's no way. It's not the same environment in 2016. The media has no choice but to cover these trials. Do I understand why it seems to strengthen him with his base? Of course Mm -hmm. not. I don't. But we can't avoid covering the trials because we think it might be a positive for him fundraising wise. Like, I just think that it's really difficult because it is so deeply weird. It's just deeply weird. The state of the Republican Party is weird. And I think the consistent issue across those three very different elections, including the one we're in, is that it's it's hard in a two party system when one party is broken, because you want to appear fair and balanced and cover the parties in similar ways. So, Beth, how would you improve media coverage of of this political race? That's a fantastic question that we think about all the time. So we tend not to talk much about polling on our Mm -hmm. show because polling is uh, useful And it's not something that I think should be completely ignored. I think it's especially useful for campaigns. But as voters, it is not useful to us. It is something that kind of dilutes our feeling that we're here making a decision, that our vote will will matter, that our efforts to persuade each other will matter. I think spending time following the campaigns around is still very valuable. What are they talking to voters about? What What has shifted from the beginning of the campaign to the end? I wish that there were more pressure from commentators in media on Donald Trump and Joe Biden to debate, especially for Donald Trump to have a primary debate with Nikki Haley, and then for the two of them to debate each other when it comes to general election time. I think there are lots of hard questions about covering the the indicators of age from Joe Biden. And I don't think it's wrong to cover those. 
Uh, I don't think it's wrong to talk about his age or question what it would mean to have an 86-year-old president. I would love to see those questions move more toward asking him directly, and I wish his team would let him answer these types of questions. What would you do differently in a second term? How do you see Vice President Harris's role being different in the second term than it's been in the first term? Are there any adjustments that you'd make with your cabinet, considering that you are going to be older this this time than in the first term? So those are those are my thoughts. Sarah, what do you think? Part of the problem with an incumbent president and an incumbent president who has had an, an enormously long career in American politics And then also with a a former president who's employed a lot of more experienced campaign operatives than last time, is it feels like the campaigns themselves have also not accepted that the rules have changed. Like they're kind of struggling in the same way the media is. I think about this a lot as a person who's worked in politics my whole life. Like all these rules that we have in our head either as media or campaign consultants or candidates themselves, even voters, these rules about what matters to a voter, what doesn't, what works in a campaign ad, what doesn't, where are the voters, How even polling. We struggled with polling for years because I just don't think everybody wants to accept that it's it's the upside down. (laughs) Everything is different. What motivates voters? What what works in a campaign? How the role state parties have to play, you know, All of these different pieces, even these like kind of growing conversations around conventions, what could happen at the convention? Could something different happen at the convention? Like you can just see this this sense of like everything's different, but we're still talking about campaigns like it's 2010. And it just feels clunky and weird. Like I think we're using the word weird appropriately. We feel intuitively that we're in a different place and we're being held back by both the candidates, the campaigns, and our thinking about elections. I think weird is the perfect word <laughs> to describe uh, this this uh, this election this time around. Beth, I want to go back to your, your point about debates, um, about the media should be calling for more debates. And, I mean, uh, let's say in the end it is Trump versus Biden. I mean, could we go to... November without a single debate? I mean, I, I can't keep it straight, but is, is it Trump? Trump wants to debate Biden, but Biden doesn't want to debate him. Like, like what, what is this really happening? There, there might not be any debate. <laughs> I think it's very possible that we get to November without a general election debate. And I think it's easy for Trump to make that call today when he knows the Biden team isn't going to be interested in responding to it. I could see that flipping down the road. I could see President Biden saying, yes, now that we each have said said our nominees, I'll do this. Uh, I could equally imagine the White House saying we will not. He's not a normal candidate. He doesn't respect democratic norms. He tried to steal the last election. Like, no, thank you. Uh, and I don't know that they would be totally off base in doing that. But I think it's I think it is a disservice ultimately to the public to not see these two candidates on stage next to each other. And I think it would be a disservice to President Biden himself, who I do believe could perform well enough in that debate to to overcome some of the questions about his age and his his sharpness. One of the most frustrating things for me as a former Republican who left the party during the Trump years 
and is independent enough that I've changed my registration back to Republican so that I can go vote for Nikki Haley and say no to Donald Trump, but but will support President Biden in the general election. So that's my those are all my biases. Okay, that's my personal agenda here. It frustrates me that the Biden team seems as worried as the media coverage about his age by by not allowing him to be out there more because I think he could perform well. So I would like to see that pressure applied to his campaign to to get out and do it. If they think if they think he's up to it and they've told us that he is, then let him do the things and let people see that. So let's let's talk more about age, because that is one of the issues that you hear about over and over again, not just about Biden's age, but also Trump's age. I mean, when you meet with voters, what are they saying about their age? I think I forgot if it was Beth or Sarah, but what I, I know you guys are you're one of you is deeply worried about Biden's age. Look, I don't think any one of us. Voter, media member candidate, whoever it is, if you are an American and you're a voting age, I wish everybody would we could sort of have a like a, a come to Jesus, as we come, say in the South, like a little round table, meet me at camera three, whatever you want to call it to say. Except that when you are talking about these two men's age, you are talking about your own feelings as well about age and retirement and worth and purpose and that's why what's what we try to do at Pantsuit Politics is acknowledge and say out loud, this is about more than we think it is. And so when we're talking about Joe Biden's age or Donald Trump's age, it's about more than we think it is. And we have to acknowledge that. We just have to acknowledge that. It's OK. We have an aging country. We have an aging demographic that is going to bring up so and already has brought up so many things. And we just have to say, OK. So this is this is a reality for a country, maybe an increasingly likely reality for a country with an aging demographic that we will have older leaders. I mean, why would they even if they knew they weren't of, you know, a sound mind and they were aging? I mean, would they even admit it? I mean, they just want to hang on to power. Well, I'm the one who's the most worried about Biden's age of the two of us. I, I express this more frequently than Sarah does. It, it does worry me. And it does worry me because of my personal experiences with age. You know, we're Kentuckians. Mitch McConnell is one of our senators. I have a grandmother who had, I, I loved her so much. She's my favorite person in the world. And near the end of her life, she started to have some episodes similar to what we saw with Senator McConnell. And... Recently, Sarah and I were talking about a quote from one of his aides about how significantly his health had improved. And I was so skeptical of that because of my own life experience with my grandmother. I saw that she would be fine again until she wasn't. And there was never an an indicator that it was coming. It just came. And so I do look at President Biden, who seems to me to be of sound mind and body right now, and think he is until he isn't. And we are gambling with terrible odds at this point. Every year that goes by, the only certainty is that the odds get worse, no matter what he does. Now, I get myself to a comfort level of voting for him anyway, because I think one of the things we're least honest about with the president is the fact that this is the hirer in chief, that the that President Biden's entire administration, to me, seems to have come in during a crisis and worked really hard economically, in terms of public health, now in terms of foreign policy, they're working really hard to deal with crises on numerous fronts. And I would like to see that whole apparatus 
stable for a few more years to just continue that work because it's not done, right? COVID is not behind us. Dealing with the aftermath of COVID economically is not behind us. And certainly what's happening in Ukraine and Israel, the conflict with China, the possibility of Taiwan being invaded, like all of those issues are going to keep simmering. So I would like to allow that stability across the whole of the government. And I work really hard to stay on top of what Vice President Harris is doing. And and I have a comfort level with her. Uh, That is a case that is going to have to be made to more voters, I think. Um, and and I do think that the that personal experience, you know, our listeners get furious about the fact that we don't talk as much about Trump's age, not just we, but the whole of media, that it's like Biden is the old one here. But I think people's personal experience is that a few years can make a huge difference. And I think that that's why it's more of a concern for Biden the second time around and why his team needs to work really hard to show people we have a plan for this. I do worry, even under the best of circumstances, that a significant health event for a president, which seems very likely with both of these leading candidates, would be bad for the country, even with a great plan behind it. Um, And I think that that needs to be addressed. You do a lot of touring. You talk to a lot of voters. What would you say is the prevailing mood of the electorate compared to previous years? I would say, you know, months ago, the word I used was malaise. Like, there's just a, ugh. you know, our our listenership is that independent, suburban female voter, a lot of which left the Republican Party during the presidency of Donald Trump, have a long history with the Republican Party, maybe. They're not super thrilled with Joe Biden either. I think that sense of just... Feeling like the stakes are high, but that you don't have a lot of power within the system to exercise your frustration with the choices is really, it's not motivating people, it's disempowering people. I think the idea that this is going to be like a high turnout election is misplaced. I think that there is not a lot of energy. I think people, you know, elections are supposed to be about the future, right? And when you have the same candidates, the same very elderly candidates, I think there's just this sense of like a big heavy sigh. Like that is what I feel Mm. like we hear from our listeners. Like just a, like that's it. That's the whole entire reaction. So what are some of the issues that seem most important to voters right now? I think it depends on which voters you're talking to. You know, we talk to people who are in Michigan right now and are thinking about their vote for President Biden in the Democratic primary. And they will support President Biden in the general election, but they want to say something to him about his handling of the situation between Israel and Hamas. Right. And so they're they're listening to uh, Rashida Tlaib there. That's very localized to Michigan because of the population there and because of what they hear from friends and neighbors um, about what's happening in Gaza. Like I said, we're on college campuses. I think that is very economically driven, not the price of groceries, but what's happening with student loans? What opportunities are available to me? Am I ever going to be able to buy a house? A lot of issues that presidential candidates don't speak to very well and in a way that would get those voters out. I think the Biden administration has really tried around student loans, but other topics are kind of left on the table. I think that's why those voters aren't always coming out to vote. Our audience is going to be heavily motivated by reproductive rights. So it just depends on where you are and who you're talking to this time, which is another kind of weird dynamic in this race. I don't know that there are issues that are resonating with everybody. 
I think, you know, <laughs> there was analysis that the Trump campaign wants it to be a referendum on Joe Biden, which in theory it should be since we have an incumbent president. I just see that as very unlikely. I don't think Donald Trump is capable of allowing it to be a referendum on somebody else. He likes to talk about himself way too much. And so I think the more he is himself, it's going to become, again, a referendum on him. More of my conversation with Sarah and Beth after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com commercial. This is what it sounds like. Member FDIC. So research shows we are more divided than ever as a country when it comes to politics. How do you think we got here? Sarah, why don't you start us off on that topic? Um, I think that we are not as divided as in the past. Sarah, when you say Pat in the past, like how far in the past? <laughs> um, I would say when we started the podcast, maybe like 2016, 2018, 2018. Somewhere in there. So wait, you're saying that we're less divided today than we were in 2016? Well, I don't think it's because we have some sort of bipartisan kumbaya agreement on policy issues. But I think, and I, like I said, I think that the extremes of both parties have grown even further apart. But I think more people have abandoned those extreme positions. They're just leaving politics and news. They're just tapping out. They're just saying, forget it. Like, this is not productive. All I've done over these last few years is alienate the people around me. I don't feel better. Things don't seem better, um, even though I would argue a lot of things are better. Um, and so forget it. I'm just not going to do it anymore. The The biggest, the biggest group of Americans is not those fighting about politics. It's those that don't that go days, weeks, months without thinking about politics at all or the people who don't engage with news at all. And I think that that's the group that if you put them in a room, even about some of the tougher issues, they they'd come to agreement. We hear and, and you know what? Honestly, even in the political analysis, you hear that. What do we hear? The majority of Americans do not support illegal abortions. Right. The majority of Americans support common sense gun laws. The majority of Americans support immigration reform. So what do are we as divided? Are we that divided? Because it seems like on even some of the toughest policy issues, when you actually scratch at the surface, that there is a lot of agreement there. The problem is that our political process does not award that right now. Beth, how about you? How do you feel? Do you feel like, uh, I guess, do you agree that that we aren't as divided as we think we are? And how do we, I guess the follow-up would be, how do we get out of that? How do we, how do we discover that we aren't as divided? <laughs> I think in some ways we are less divided because some of the issues are running away from easy binaries. I think artificial intelligence is a great example of an issue that is going to affect everyone's lives every day more than almost anything happening in Congress. 
And that is largely out of the hands of the political process, probably for better and worse, you know. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the things that we engage with every single day, it just feels like the political process can't answer those questions. And so opting out is not only symptomatic of disgust with that polarization, but also of a belief that the solutions lie elsewhere. And I don't think that's a terrible thing as long as we still have a functional government. But if the majority of citizens have decided that politics doesn't hold the answer to every question, I think that's pretty healthy. And I do think that's the dynamic that's happening. And I think a lot of indicators of that are just going to be lagging. It's it's going to take a few years for that to start to show up. But I, I had yesterday a group of kids. I coach an academic team that does future problem solving exercises. These middle schoolers are at my house and we're talking about autonomous transportation. And what really came up in that conversation is like if a town decided we want to go all in on self-driving cars, what difference does it make if the private sector isn't backing that up? And if the private sector backs that up really efficiently, then there's no competition. And these kids could see that that Republican versus Democrat really starts to fly out the window when you get down to executing on an idea that would actually be relevant to their lives in the future. So as much as I love politics, I am kind of happy that some of us are are dialing back on that fervor that was so pre- prevalent when Sarah and I started the podcast. So you two think a lot about having more, I think what you call, quote unquote, grace-filled conversations about politics. Um, ex- explain to listeners, what do you mean by that and and why is that important? When we say grace, we're talking about civic grace. So beginning from the proposition that everybody matters, Sarah will often say, we are going to have California and Louisiana in this country. People aren't moving. So let's begin from the proposition that we are together and we would like to remain so. From there, let's get curious about how we got here because everybody got where they are in some way, through some set of stories that we don't know uh, the complete beginning, middle, and end of. We often hear from listeners about conflict within their families, kind of the classic, it's Thanksgiving, I'm going to sit at the table with these people. And we'll say, like, instead of fighting with your brother about his right-wing politics, say something like, isn't it interesting that we grew up in this house together and we see this so differently? How do you think that happened? You know, we, we did the same kinds of activities. We had the same parents. We both lived here in this community. And I got here and you got there. What do you think caused that? And just explore some of that with each other, because the truth is you don't have to leave that Thanksgiving meal with draft legislation or a candidate that everybody (laughs) in your household has agreed to endorse. You can just leave knowing each other better. And knowing each other better leaves the door open for influence and persuasion at some point. But all of that has to be a two-way street. If I'm not learning something every time I talk to someone about politics, what was the point? I think we just want to step back from Let me go into every conversation for the purpose of winning someone over so that they can behave in the way that I'd like them to, to let's go into every conversation for the purpose of deepening relationships, because in the long term, deepening relationships allows us to be problem solvers and allows us to be more persuasive when when it's time for people to make a binary choice in an election. You know, it's funny when we wrote our first book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening to Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. Back in um, 2018 was when we were really writing it. We started the first chapter with saying, like, 
well, we really need to leave behind this idea that we shouldn't talk politics, especially as women. I think there was a perception that you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion. By the time we wrote our second book, now what? That was like a, a very quaint idea that people didn't want to talk politics, right, that you would avoid it. That it, we were sort of arguing like, hey, everything doesn't have to be about politics. Like, Or if you feel like everything's about politics, really maybe there's something else going on. Um, maybe there's deeper issues, um, generational issues or expectations or status within the family that shifted. And we're asking, you know, the latest outrage about a Starbucks cup or all the way to January 6th to hold those conflicts. And what could we do to sort of piece that apart? And now, you know, we've been doing this almost 10 years. We're back around. Now I think the issue is, hey, it's worth talking about. I think we're back to like, don't avoid it. So I think the Trump years have trained a lot of people, um, I count myself as one of them, just to avoid the topic of politics, you know, with friends and neighbors, right? It's, is that okay? I mean, should we engage with each other? I think we avoid it because of the emotion that will follow when we find out how people view issues. And something that I say often especially to my children, but elsewhere in my life, is I'm not afraid of your feelings. I am willing to be with whatever it is that you feel or whatever it is that I feel about this. And so I just had to reach a place where I can know about people's politics and sometimes have that initial reaction of like, oh, I really, I am so bummed to learn this. But then still remember that this is a person I see every week at my church and really enjoy and they are they they are not different because I've learned a new fact about them. And my experience of them doesn't have to be different. I don't have to fear this. And and I hope that they would extend there's that grace again. I hope they would extend that same grace to me. So one of the most controversial chapters of our first book was called Put Keep Politics in Its Place. And and I think that that's probably some of the best advice in the book, some of the most enduring vice, advice in the book, that like we have to be willing to accept each other as whole people and being with that conflict is part of it. Mm. I was listening to Adam Grant's podcast and he had Denise Hamilton on. and She had this great line about, I don't think you can love America without loving Americans. Mm. And I thought, well, that seems pretty important during a presidential year. Um, with our community, we're reading Democracy in America and just kind of going back in time and thinking about what are what, what are we doing here? Do we want to keep doing it? Really? Is this, a, is this an experiment we're interested in continuing? I am. I know the answer to that question for myself. Absolutely. I would not live anywhere else in the world. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I know patriotism has become cringe, as the kids say. Um, but I think that's been detrimental. Because I think if you want people invested in politics, and if you want people invested in elections, and if you want people invested in policy, if you want people invested in change, then they have to be invested in the country itself. And so I, I think in an election year, there's a chance to, to, to ask yourself, to ask your friends, to ask your family members, to ask... You know, we don't usually endorse engaging with strangers about politics, but heck, why not? It's a weird year, back to our, our word from the beginning, to think like we're doing something here together. It matters. 
And so what do we want that to look like? And often that starts with a really good, important conversation. Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers are the hosts of the podcast Pantsuit Politics. Their latest book is called Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. This has been a great conversation. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for being on Say More. Thank you, Shirley. It was great to be here with you. Yes, thanks for having us. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer with help from Alexis Sargent and Scott Hellman. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.